You're listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from our friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Janice Legata, and this is God Has Not Given, an evangelical podcast featuring me and my failing faith and conversations with my friends and family. And the conversation in this episode is in some ways a continuation of the one started in the last episode, a continuation of me trying to sort out how to be a better ally as a person of color. So join me as I jump honestly and hopefully into episode 2.8. Let's go. When I first Libby. So Libby, I know from church, we met in, I want to say 2017, because that's when I made the transition from Hillsong. Yeah. So we were planting a church together. And Libby has been, I feel like since day one of me knowing her, just a, an amazing support for me. Um, like you have always gone hard my book like sometimes I forget I have a book and then Libby reminds me you had this poem and it just like was so like you recited it at um, a bible study yeah and it was a bible study that I actually didn't even want to go to because I was so upset that day and um, I felt God calling me to go and so I went to that bible study and I was like God well I'm here there's something there's something in this bible study that you want me to like get from it and you were just making like a shameless plug for your book. And you picked like, I don't know if it was like a random poem or if you like intentionally told it, but the poem, like it spoke to me and I was like, oh, that's like the, the thing that God wanted me to get from that Bible study. It had nothing to do with the Bible study. It was your poem. Um, and then I remember Daniel, we were at the beach, like maybe a couple shortly after that. And he was reading your book and I took the book from him and I was just like looking for your poem. And he was like trying to read your book. And I just spent the entire time looking because I was like, no, I have to find this poem. But I did find it and it was great. And I bought your book. And so we're all good. All good things. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And I also, I know, I know which poem it is. So I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, and then I also feel kind of bad for you because I know that poem is towards the end of the book. So you yeah. would have definitely... <laughs> It took me it took me a little while. <laughs> Spent some time digging. But that's actually a, a perfect segue right into little segment one here because I wrote this book. I was reading it at a Bible study. So at some point I obviously very much was a Christian. At this point, questionable. So Libby, give me three things that to you make someone a Christian. All right. So I think um first off would be believing in the gospel. And I know that sounds like super like Christian-y like lingo, um, but like to break it down into more like just like commonplace terms, I guess, I feel like it's just like believing that God chose to send his son, like not as like a king or something like that, but like as a vulnerable, like little baby in hateful and oppressive circumstances and allowed him to experience the things that we experience, which I think is incredible because not a lot of religions that I know or any have a God that like has been human and understands what humans go through. Um, and so just allowing that to come into place um, and allowing him to grow up for the sole purpose of dying 
and to save humanity from our sins. And the fact that all of that was done by choice, by love, not out of obligation because he didn't need to do any of that. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two is um, I believe to be a Christian, you need to believe that all people deserve love, respect, um, care, dignity, um, regardless of whether or not you share the same beliefs. You could disagree with someone, but you can still um, respect them and you could still have conversations with them and you can still um, care about them. So that's number two. Number three is I think um, being a Christian, you have to believe and understand that this world is trash um, and it is full of trashy people that um, talk trash, act like trash, um, but believing that we were made for more than trash. And if we honestly in our hearts believe that we were made for more than this trashy world, then we are obligated to act um, a certain way. Ooh, I love that. So for the past few episodes for a while now, um, it hasn't been a yes or no for me. Like every week I've kind of been Christian-ish because it's yeah. usually two out of three I can usually get down with. Yep. Um, and it seems that trend is going to continue. Uh, I definitely, yeah, two and three, I can 100% get down with. I haven't landed on what exactly I'm doing with the gospel and with Jesus and like the exact reasons he came. Um, so on that piece, I don't know. So this week, again, Christian-ish. I respect the journey. And again, you are setting me up for these perfect segues. So speaking of journeys, yeah. Ruby, how did, how did you get here? What is, what is your Christian journey? Um, to be honest, I feel like whenever people asked about like, oh, what's your testimony? I always felt like kind of like embarrassed. I was like, I don't really have one. Like I'm kind of, my story is kind of boring. Um, cause I grew up in the church. So I was, um, like both of my parents, um, were Christian when I was born. So I grew up and going to a church in um, lower Manhattan in Chinatown from I, from when I was born, basically, um, up until I started going to the church where I met you at, mm -hmm. um, which was when I was like 27, probably. So basically all my life, I went to my home church. Um, I was raised in that church. Mostly the majority of my friends growing up were um, Christian friends that I either had from that church or... Um, the children of my parents, who are also mostly Christian. Mm -hmm. um, some some non-Christian friends in elementary school here and there, but none that like lasted throughout the course of time. Um, eventually, I grew up, um, went to a pretty diverse college, and then maybe shortly after that, started learning about social justice, um, started like um, hearing things in the news, like learning about people that were different than me. And I just really wanted to have an experience where I met Christians that looked different than me and met Christians that grew up differently than me. Um, because I thought I was like, Libby, you grew up in New York City, you're from here, and you've always been here. Yet for 27 years, the only Christians you know, are the people that you grew up with. And I felt like there was something wrong with that. So I kind of like low key prayed like, in my head, not like sat down and like closed my eyes and just like every night like prayed, but just like in my head, I was like, God, I like, I want like to meet different people. Mm -hmm. um, and then so eventually I ended up um, randomly, like coincidentally moving to Harlem 
um, and wasn't trying to move there, but moved there. Um, and then eventually found um, my new church. Yeah. And yeah. Those prayers were answered. So that's, I think, I don't know. I always, always hate that in Christianity so often because I felt the same way. Like, oh, I don't really have a testimony because I was just Christian the whole time. Right. Um, just like grew up in it. And I'm like, no, that is a testimony. Like every, every story is valid. And like, that's no small thing that you looked around and decided, oh, like this is good and this works for me, but I want, I want something different. Like I want, I want to introduce something new. That's a, that's actually like a really miraculous thing because so much I feel like of what we're facing right now is because people do not want to leave their bubbles yeah. and do not want to see people that don't look like them, don't think like them. I'm always about like growth and just like wanting to meet people that are different and hear other people's stories. And so I feel like that whole thing, like I love my story now, you know, like after, you know, that stuff happens. Um, but like, I think that that kind of stuff is just a reminder that like, if you really want things that are like glorifying to God and that those are like God honoring things that are good, then God has no problem giving those things to you. Yeah. I prayed for something. I prayed to like grow as a person. I prayed to like experience like other people's lives and things like that. And why wouldn't God want me to have that? So. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Um, So then on the other end of that spectrum, a young Christian white man went on a killing spree in Atlanta, targeted Asian women, so targeted others. His brand of Christianity obviously did not incorporate other people, did not want to. So this is just, you know, a dangerous, a peak of just the the anti-Asian rhetoric that has been growing and multiplying over the past year. You know, what are what are some of your raw thoughts on this at the moment? I've been really overwhelmed um, the past couple of days. And there are just so many feelings that I'm like processing. And then in processing those feelings, it's like life doesn't stop. Like life goes on. You still have to go to work. You still have to like do whatever obligations. Um, I guess, thankfully for COVID, I guess like I don't have too many obligations other than work right now. Um, but it's been um, overwhelming. I think I feel a lot of anger. Um, I think in, in other experiences in my life, I think sometimes anger is like one of my default um, reactions for different reasons. But I think in this um, in this situation, um, anger at the act of being able to casually buy a gun just a couple hours before you um, commit a mass murder. So very thoughtless, not not even like planned out. I mean, I don't even know which is better if you planned it out or not. Um, but just the act of being able to do that, um, the way that like police and white supremacy, that's a word that I'm gonna probably repeat a lot because that's, co- that's covered in all of what we're talking about. Um, but the way that um, the police and white supremacy protect and provide excuses for white men while innocent people of color are wrongfully detained and murdered. Because I don't know if you know, but um, one of the women that died, um, or that was murdered, excuse me, um, she was married to a Latino man and he was wrongfully detained and handcuffed for two hours while his wife lay dying. And how do you, how do you, I read that they were in the spa, like celebrating her decision to quit her job, I think. And so just like the fact that you're going there for a celebratory thing with your husband 
And then because he's another man of color that people will sometimes view as criminal, um, he'll get detained and he won't even be there for his wife's like last moments. I think that that's heartbreaking to me. And so that makes me angry um, that that's a result of um, the way that the police system works in our country. Um, I feel disgusted for the lengths people go to hurt others. Um, And again, for the way that society justifies those actions and crimes. Like I don't need to repeat like the whole had a bad day thing. I think we're all upset about that. And if you're not upset upset about that, then like, don't talk to me. Um, But like, um, just the way that like, um, society also justifies those crimes and people that die by like, like, I feel like when black people are murdered, there'll be people will justify it by saying like, oh, but he had a criminal record. Right. So what if he had a criminal record? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that like the cops knew that at the time or that he deserved to die for like the way that he did. Um, the same way that, you know, some people are talking about now, like, oh, like questioning whether the massage parlor was like legitimate or like was like, you know, used for like sex. Um, that doesn't like, why does that matter? What really matters is that like, how did you let, how does society let like a white man like bring a gun like and murder people? Um, for no reason. It doesn't matter what the people were doing for a living. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what their histories were. They didn't deserve to die. Um, And so, you know, innocent people get murdered. Um, White people get arrested without incident. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just like, that boggles my mind. I feel sad for um, the victims of the families, obviously. Um, Reading the stories, I haven't read all of them, but um, the stories that I have read are obviously very heartbreaking. Um, I think I read one, um, a son was talking about how he was raised by a single mother. And so because his mother had passed, he was responsible for taking care of himself and his younger brother. And how he only had like a month to like get out of their house, that out of their home to like find another place of living and how he had no time to grieve. He just had to move on because he had to be the caretaker now I think that is extremely heartbreaking um people that are like you know triggered by these events other people that work in massage parlors or predominantly owned Asian businesses um Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how scary it is um to be in those positions right now um I feel exhausted from I've been trying to talk about you know the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes for the past year and I don't feel like many people have been listening Um, So it's exhausting trying to talk about this for such a long time. And only now are people starting to listen. Um, And I feel skeptical, to be honest, towards people that are um, uh, coming out and showing support and thinking that these kind of things are new. Um, And I'm wondering, like, if your word, not you, obviously, but I'm wondering if people's words of solidarity will ever turn into um, real and meaningful action. Yeah. 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 Those are... Just the feelings that come off the top of my head. And unfortunately, I understand. These things keep happening, have been happening in the Black community. So this is something that I've seen and I'm not, I'm always saddened and I'm hurt when it happens, but I'm not surprised anymore. Um, Like, was there anything about this that was surprising to you or not surprising to you about? To be honest, I think if this had happened outside of like pre-COVID, I think I would have been surprised because i think in in like our generation i feel like we haven't seen such a huge spike in like latent hate crimes against asian i'm not gonna say oppression because i think we'll get into that later like white supremacy oppresses asians much differently than they do um the black community and so um 
But if this event had happened outside of COVID, I think I might have been surprised. But after like what's happened this past year and what we've been seeing, things that I've just been like reading about, like um, elderly people getting like burned, like set on fire on the street, like acid being thrown, um, all this stuff. Um, not like we haven't seen a shooting, but like, I mean, I think it was like, unfortunately, it was like bound to happen. And not necessarily, maybe not necessarily because of COVID, because I don't want to, you know, the, the motives are, his motives were racial, racial, 100%. But, you know, you don't know if it's because of COVID or not. There were some Facebook posts, I believe, that, you know, showed like correlation. But um, I wasn't surprised. Yeah, I mean, I will say I definitely, this level of, of violence and anti-Asian rhetoric, this, this level of it definitely feels new to me. I definitely, like you said, we'll get in, into it later as far as, you know, oppression and kind of the tensions between our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would never say like, oh, nothing happens to Asians. But I would say, yeah, it's just very different. Yes. Um, and so this kind of this, this blatant physical violence, like, yeah, it feels very, very new to me. But I guess, yeah, I would, I would say that COVID has played a part, number one, in our awareness of just things going on. And I would put a lot of the, the blame for this level of, of vitriol and just this, this rhetoric on people's, you know, perceptions of COVID and where it came from. And, you know, certain people using that as like a flag, right? you know, oh, we're going to blame China for this. Right. And, you know. Yeah. And I agree. I think it had, um, I think words, I was watching an interview and um, the woman was saying like, if you continue to speak these kind of words where you're blaming um, a particular ethnic group um, for a global pandemic, like, of course, like those words are going to get turned into action eventually. You might not be explicitly asking for it or, you know, commanding people, but you are giving people permission to um, act in a hateful manner. And you're giving people permission to act in a way that um, that kind of like shows how they were feeling the whole time. So I think it is, I think although um, certain people um, are to blame for the rise, I think it's really, um, I think it's important to note that the feelings were there the whole time. It's just that a space was created for those feelings um, to flourish and thrive. But it's dangerous to not acknowledge the fact that oppression towards Asians, like even if we're seeing it um, for the first time in our lifetime, that it has existed um, for many, many years prior to what we're seeing now. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely nothing, nothing new, truly. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing new in the United States. Yes. History. And it sucks because like, when have you or I ever actually learned about, you know, proper Black history or proper Asian American history? Because in any, in any story, you always tell the story to make you look good. And you think that's the case for people as individuals, but you see, like, looking back, that's also the case for um, history. Like, history is, the way that American history is taught is to make America look good, where in reality, it's actually, like, like I said, very (laughs) trash. Um, Trash is the word. So. So, yeah, but I mean, but speaking of 
American history and speaking of, you know, certain individuals, for me, 2016 has become one of those years that always, that I think forever will feel like it was just last week. Like I, it's, it's so visceral to me and I can just remember the things that happened. And so it always feels like it was, it was just then. So like, it's crazy to think about it now and be like, oh, 2016. Oh my God, that was five, you know, five years ago. Like we've gone through a whole other election cycle, whole other things of happening. But like, for me, it's almost like, you know, BC and AD, like it's like this thing that kind of splits time. Um, but like, when I look back, that was when I was first, not even first aware of kind of white supremacy in the church, but that was when it was like blatant on display for everyone to see. And I was like, oh, okay. I know for sure now where white evangelicals are. I know for sure where black people are. And obviously this is all, you know, hashtag not all men, not all black people, not all, you know, right. Whatever. No, no race but, right. No, no monoliths here, but you know, in general, if I were having a conversation with a white evangelical, I knew what not to say and what topics to avoid. I knew what I could say to black people. And, you know, we could kind of have that look across the room. Mm -hmm. But when I look back, I can't place Asians. I'm like, I don't know where they were, what they were thinking. I probably have my own suspicions, you know, just because of tensions and you know, our communities being pit against each other. Um, and I feel like we've all been, you know, white supremacy is this monster and we've all been trying to fight it in our own ways. And sometimes that that has meant sacrificing each other right. to it. Right. Um, so, so I don't know. So what has this stretch of time looked like for you? Like, where were you? Where was your community? What were your feelings in like 2016 through right. the election, through COVID, through now? Like, what, what has that been like? Um, I think honestly, in 2016, it's funny. I actually remember, like, I mean, obviously, similar to like big events in history, you always have your like, where were you when kind of moments. Yeah. And I, I found out that Trump was president. Um, I was in Zambia, and I just remember like refreshing. I think it was like maybe like in the middle of the night or something. I just kept refreshing my phone to see if anything had changed. And it was like shortly after I woke up that I found out, and I was super depressed. And then I think I was coming back to the states like a couple weeks after that and everybody upon seeing my American passport was like, like making comments like, Oh, how do you feel about your new president? I was like, don't talk to me. Um, and I obviously like a lot of other people, I like didn't, I was not a fan of Trump at the time. It wasn't because I thought he was racist. I think the majority of like what people were saying back then was just like how blatantly disrespectful he was towards women. And so I think that was like my huge, like, grievance or whatever I don't think it had anything to do I don't think it had much to do with race and honestly like I said this this whole like resentment like blatant explicit like hate crimes towards Asians like you know it's kind of new for our generation new like for just like since COVID right so for the most part like over the past couple of years you know I didn't I couldn't I probably couldn't place Asians either um, but like we talked about, I only grew up learning American history and maybe, right. maybe not even learning American history because that was a class that I fell asleep in every single day in high school. And so, um, it was only last year and I have a lot to, um, I owe a lot to the black community because it wasn't 
it actually wasn't until I started going to our church, which was predominantly black, that I saw black people being proud to be black. And that made me more proud to be Asian, because I think up until that point, what I had to what I've had to unpack over the past couple of years is how white supremacy has played into my upbringing as an Asian American and having to deconstruct, right? That's the word that you're, that you used, right? Having to like deconstruct like those views and like the things that you grew up believing that were true, like maybe are not actually true just because you've been being told them your whole life. And so it wasn't until um, like last year where, you know, the black community was advocating, like, you know, listen to us. Like we've been, we've been talking about this. Like, why aren't you listening? Like, why don't you want to learn? Um, and it was kind of like, how can I commit myself to learning more about Black history when I didn't even fully understand my own? And mm. so I actually, learning for me about Asian American history is kind of new to me even um, in the past year, um, as surprising or not surprising as that is. And so just looking at all the things that have happened um, through history and um, can I have a minute to just educate? You can have all the minutes, take them, come on, it, give it to It us. blows my mind because I'm just like how, you know, I was raised here and I'm a product just like many other people um, under all, all colors, white, black, Asian, we're all products of white supremacy in one way mm -hmm. or another. And um, unlearning that is like a lifelong process. And so for me, like some of the things that I've learned, um, like last year, like, the, the Transcontinental Railroad, right? That was built starting in 1863. It was majorly um, Chinese workers that were coming in, I believe, like um, looking, for, looking for gold, right? They were paid one third of what white workers were paid. Um, they were not given like appropriate like housing or um, taken care of um, in any means. They were excluded from recognition. So a really big thing is um, that there was like a picture of like, I think the Chinese workers and the white workers and the Chinese workers were just cut out of that picture. And so in like all of history, you just have this picture of like white people built the railroad. And it wasn't yeah. until like more recently, like in our lifetime, that Chinese people were actually acknowledged for something that they built over a hundred, close to 200 years ago. And, um, and then on top of that, they, Chinese workers were used for the most dangerous jobs. So the jobs of like exploding, like through tunnels and like blowing up tunnels, uh, blowing up mountains, like to make tunnels and stuff like that. You had to like throw in like mines or something like that and just kind of run out and get out as quick as you can. And a lot of people died. A lot of Chinese workers died doing that. Then there's like the Chinese Exclusion Act that was 1882. So like you can't come into the country because you look Asian. And that, that like directly impacted like my uh, family's immigration because although my father was born in New York, his father immigrated. And the last name that I have um, is actually called like a paper name. It's not our, it's not our family's real last name. It was a bought name um, so that he could enter the States during um, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so oh. my family, my father chose to keep that last name, um, but everyone else on his side of the family um, changed their um, last name back to the family name. So we're the only family on this side with our last name. Then there's like the Japanese internment camps during World War II. And that was literally, uh, the US decided to detain like hundreds of thousands Japanese people because they were afraid that they would become spies. And so it had nothing, that would like the equivalent of that would be like putting me in an internment camp if we 
got into a war with China. And meanwhile, mm -hmm. like I've never, I've never like been to China before. And, um, you know, I don't know anyone in China. And so like that, like, that's just like preposterous. Right. And, right. Then, um, and then there was a period of time and I don't want to speak, like, I don't have a date for this. I told you, I didn't want to like, like say anything false, but there was a period of time where Chinese men were allowed to come into the States, but Chinese women were not because, and this specifically ties into the shooting because they were Chinese women or Asian women were conflated with like promiscuity and prostitution. And so they weren't allowed into the States just because of that, like, um, correlation or, or association rather in 1982. And this is crazy because this is actually like in, you know, our lifetime, this was like a little bit before I was born, but the, um, there was, uh, the murder of Vincent Chen. He was, um, a Chinese American man and he was murdered the night of his bachelor party by two white men who were upset, they worked in the automobile industry and they were upset with um, Japan. And so they, they, they decided to um, take their anger out on a Chinese man and they followed him like outside of his um, bachelor party and they murdered him. That's, that's, that's 1982, that's like not even 40 years, that's barely 40 years ago. Um, and then the most recent thing that I just came across like recently is um, a congressman from New Jersey, Andy Kim, Mm -hmm. He, um, he, this, and he shared this, I think like, after, like this past week maybe, but he shared that he used to work, um, for the state department and he, he was working like in a, in Afghanistan and he randomly one day got an email or a letter that banned him from working on any issue related to Korea. And he was confused because he was like, I've never, I've never, I never even applied to work on Korea issues. And so what is the, what is the problem if I have top secret clearance on everything yet you're that my government is telling me that you don't trust me. Right. And so, and people were telling him, don't make a big fuss. It's not like he wanted to work on those issues anyways, but he was like, it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of respect. And so that was like his internal battle. And that was like, you know, much more recently. So yeah, thank you for those two ish minutes. But I just feel like the people need to know because a lot of people, whether I like it or not, are going to say that they are standing with Asians in solidarity, but are not going to bother to do the Google. And so if that like two minutes allows people to see a little bit more clearly the Asian American experience, then hopefully. Yeah, it's like you said, American, American history was written for white people, you know, for them. And I mean, and it's, it's not just... American history, what do they say? Like, like history is written by the victors. So of course, you know, you're going to paint, you're going to tell the story in a way that makes you look best. Right. And so, so much of what we learn about American history is just highly, highly redacted and just highly edited. Um, and so for me, it's, it was kind of the same, you know, the more I lean, lean into my own history and lean into my own you know, having to realize for myself, okay, I'm, I've been raised in, we've all just been raised in a white supremacist culture. Like it's, it's the water we're swimming in. Like it's, it's impossible to not be infect, affected by it. Like we all, that's just the baseline. Like we're all, we all have white supremacist tendencies and it's like, okay, I have to recognize that in myself and learn why do, why do I think this? Why do I feel this way? And then also learn the facts to, to combat it because it's not just enough to be like, oh, I don't think that's true. It's like, we need hard, hard evidence to be like, okay, no, this, this is actually what happened. This is actually how the story went. 
Um, and so as I've been learning about, you know, Black history, Black history and Asian history are so tied together and are so similar and follow a lot of the same, just the same plot lines. So there are a lot of things that I've learned about Asian history, the more I've been reading about Black history and, you know, about liberation and just all those struggles. It's like, oh, no, we've been on the same tracks. And it's so powerful to, like, learn about and, like, like the way that you said, lean into your own history, because I feel like that allows me to better empathize with the Black community. And I feel like if you learn more about your own history, like, you can better um, relate to other people. Because at the end of the day, like you said, we've got the same common denominator. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's crazy that one of their most successful tactics has been to pit our two communities, you know, against each other. Like there is a very specific tension between, you know, the Black and Asian communities. Are you aware of that? When did you kind of first become aware of it? What were your initial thoughts and kind of where are you on that on that journey now? Yeah, I mean, I think embarrassingly enough, my awareness of those tensions were um, raised like last summer when I started doing more of my own research. But I guess better late than never, right? And I think I, I was like, yeah, I've been like kind of aware, but I didn't actually like learn things like until I started doing my research, right? Which is why we all need to do our research. Um, and so I, I was like, now that I reflect, like I can see that the way I grew up and in the Asian culture, like there is a lot of anti-blackness, um, even, even in just like skin color, like whiteness is more favorable. There's a lot of like skin whitening products, um, a lot of, um, and I actually, I'm curious to know where it all started. I, that's something I will have to research is like, where exactly did it start? We know where we are now, but I don't know like a date or an event, like where it started. I know like LA riots were like a huge part of it, but, um, and again, like the pitting of our communities against each other, that also has a lot to do with whiteness, um, because I saw a post that said white supremacy is like sitting at the grown-ups table eating a pie and all the people of color are sitting at the kids table being thrown crumbs. And so it's like, you've got like black people, Asian people, Latino people like fighting over these crumbs when it's like, really, we should be fighting um, the people at the grown-ups table who have the whole pie. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that, um, that I've definitely learned, I hope a lot about, is um, like the model minority myth and and just how that was created by um, a white man, a white sociologist um, to basically say, Asians are doing fine in this country. They're successful and they're doing great and they're people of color. So if they're doing great, then black people must be lazy because right. why can't they achieve all the things that Asians are achieving? And so I, read, I saw another post and Instagram has been like a great source of like education, I feel, um, especially, unfortunately, after, you know, horrific crimes. But like I saw a post and it just like it, the way that it was phrased, it basically just said the model minority myth was not meant to define Asians as much as it was to define blacks. 
And some people, some Asians, like, especially like in older generations, I feel like give into that belief and actually believe those things and use that as a justification to say like, oh, well, I worked hard to be in this country. So I have no grace or no understanding for those lazy, like black people. Right. And that, and I think like, you know, we, in our generation, we're learning to break that down, but I think it's still a lot more difficult for um, the older Asian generation. I don't know about the older black community and their views, but I think speaking um, on what I've seen in the older Asian generation, like that stuff still is um, deeply rooted. But at the same time, Asian people don't realize how harmful it is to us because Asians are not just Chinese, Japanese, Korean. Like there are a lot of Vietnamese, Thai, Cambodian people from Southeast Asia living in the States. And those people are actually, those communities are actually living in poverty, many of them. And so I read something and it blew my mind, but I read something that said in 2017, Asian Americans, one in four lived in poverty. And that was the highest rate, that was the highest, um, that was the highest group living in poverty in 2017. And I was just like, are you sure Asian Americans were like the biggest group living in poverty? I don't think that's true. But I mean, like the Google says. And so that just like blew my mind because that that's the effects of white supremacy is that white supremacy will have you believe that all Asians are successful. All Asians are like great at math. And that was embarrassing because I was not. Um, and that like Asians are doing fine and that Asians are successful and great and using that as a contrast to the black community. But that that erases like, and that's what white supremacy wants you to believe because white supremacy doesn't want to take any fault in anything. And so, but what it does, it erases all the pain inflicted by white supremacy and erases um, tons of communities that are actually still struggling. Yeah. And so- that's one way that um, that our communities, I think, have been pitted against each other. I think I'm not like I feel like also you can like obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like some people in the black community can feel like a little possessive of their oppression. And like because the black community, I believe and I've, I'll never try to argue this, but that the black community is the most oppressed community. And then but because of that, like, do you ever feel like do you ever feel like black people kind of have a mentality of like, I have it worse. We have it worse than everyone else. So you'll never get it. Um, simple as shortest answer. Yes. Um, context. Yeah. I mean, the oppression Olympics are a real thing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'll be honest, just, just from my, my own perspective. Um, I, you know, I mean, and I'll, and I'll say this and it'll sound however it'll sound, but even for me, as this violence has been rising over the past year, like I've had to do my own internal work because I'm looking at these things happening and some of my reactions, you know, initially kind of being like, ah, oh, they'll be fine. Like they'll be okay. Is it terrible? Yeah. But also kind of on my on the super cynical side like oh like welcome to the party guys right we've been telling you we've been saying you know <laughs> these these people this white supremacy it's bad it's it's not good but like oh it was working for you to a certain extent right, right, right. and now now it's not right and now and so internally for me there is there is kind of a, a different sense of exhaustion and like oh like how much am i supposed to care about because it's not, it's not like the Asian violence is ramped up and they've left black people alone. Yeah. So now yeah. we can all focus right. on this, yeah. 
you know, selfishly, there has been a little bit of, oh, well, if we're giving attention to this now, then that means our causes. Yes. And that is something that like really frustrated me last year because I felt like when I saw the rise in anti-Asian rhetoric, and again, like, I know you, you know me, you know that like, and you could just follow me on social media to know you don't actually have to know me as a person, but like, I, I think I go pretty hard for the black community. I think I, 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 I care deeply about um, the black community and the people that I know and um, like the people that I work with, um, the kids that I teach. And so I, my social media is not silent when it comes to issues regarding um, Black Lives Matter. Um, and I hope to always keep it that way, regardless of what else is going on in or out of my community. And so I feel that like when Black Lives Matter was like, you know, at its height last summer, and I feel like that was like around the time that crimes against Asians also started increasing. And it really broke my heart to see that happening. And I, like I mentioned, I tried to talk about it and I feel like I got shut down a lot by people that didn't want to take away from what was happening to Black lives. And that was really hurtful to me because I, especially um, like going back to my viewpoint and my perspectives as a Christian, like Jesus did not play the oppression Olympics. Jesus did not say the only people whose pain matters is the people that are being hurt the most. Like Jesus like was a validator of all pain. The Bible says like, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you, right? It doesn't say cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you if you're hurting more than the other people are hurting. Um, it was just like, he cares. And so that just like really, I think that's like another way that like white supremacy, like I felt the tension between the black and the Asian community was when I was trying to like stand up and raise my voice over the past year. And the only people I saw talking about it were other people in the Asian community. And, and I appreciate you, like your honesty and your transparency and just saying like what you think, because other ways like that, that I've seen white supremacy, like pitting us against each other is like my views growing up as a kid. Like, I think being open and honest is like one of the best ways to grow. And it, and it, and that's your testimony, right? Is that when you say like, this is where I was and this is where I am now. And so when my out of town friends would come to visit me when I was younger, like, and I grew up in like a suburban Queens neighborhood and they wanted me to take them around places. Like I would tell them, and this would be like, maybe like half a joke, but you know that when you're joking, like there's always truth in it. And so I would tell them like, oh, I'm not going to take you to the Bronx because that's where the black and brown people live. And, yeah. and I would say that jokingly. Um, but like, that's because I never went to the Bronx, like, unless I was on a field trip to the zoo, like I never went to the Bronx. And so my lack of, um, awareness or my lack of the lack of diversity that existed in my life at that time represented my viewpoints on other people. And so praise God, cause that's a testimony, right? I've, I've, I've changed. I've come a long way since then, but I feel like it's important to just like share that. Um, as well, because that that is white supremacy at work. And I think the um, the other the last thing I'll say is um, for Asians a lot. Or I'll I'll speak for myself because we don't want to no monoliths, right? No monoliths. But um, for me as an Asian, I always have felt in the middle. You're not. I'm not white, right? I don't look. I don't look white, um, and so I don't carry all of the same privileges that white people do. I certainly carry some because I have light skin, um, and the stereotypes about my ethnicity like they benefit me but at the same time i also experience racism 
And I also experienced discrimination and hurtful words. Um, I've already experienced like two hurtful incidents this past week where like a mm. woman off the subway was yelling racist things at me um, just yesterday. And that really like kind of shook me up a little bit. Um, and another guy who um, like was catcalling me earlier this week and was and was making it racial. And I hate that. Um, but I feel like as an Asian, because I don't experience racism to the same extent that the black community does, I kind of feel I've felt like invalidated and I've always felt the need to justify my experiences and, and my pain. And so I think um, that's another big area where I've seen tension between our communities. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to, I try to remain hopeful. I don't know. I mean, like white supremacy is honestly just this, this, this huge monster. And I mean, and, and, in the, and sometimes like, it just seems honestly just undefeatable. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know how we, how we do this, how we get, how we get out of this. Because like you said, like it is a, a lifetime work undoing it um, because I don't just have to check myself about what I think. I like, I have to check myself about what I think about everyone, myself included. And like, it's so much, it's work. Um, and it's honestly, I mean, Americans, <laughs> and this I will say is a monolith, <laughs> are lazy. Like, and that's, that's all of us. Like, we just, you know, American history has been able to proceed as, you know, the story that's being told the way it has, because like, we're, as a nation, just incurious. You know, we just want the easy answer. Just, just tell me the answer. Just tell me what to think. And I will rock that until the wheels fall off. And so like for white people, the whole game is making sure the wheels don't fall off, you know? And so we got to keep these people, keep everybody thinking. It's not like they're just telling us a lie. The lie is being sold to everyone. And so there's just so much work to do to undo it all. And I feel like we're at a point right now where those of us who are working are working hard and it's tired and it's tiring because there's so much to learn like about our own histories, our own cultures, and then everybody else's too. So it's just like so much. Right. Because that's because you were at the forefront of the news last year. And just because I'm at the forefront of the news this year, doesn't mean that's the only thing that's going on in the world right now. There are other people groups, there are other causes that like need attention, but unfortunately the media likes to, zone in and like only talk about like one thing at a time right so how do we what do we do how do we support each other what do we do like how what what are you doing in these moments how are you how are you not losing your mind how are you staying hopeful or are you oh uh, it's, it's hard i think um how can our communities support each other i think we need to be willing and and ca just carry that responsibility of speaking out against injustices that don't don't directly affect us because we should know by now that everything indirectly affects us right but if it doesn't directly affect us that doesn't um excuse us from addressing it we need to recognize that we are more similar than we think like we said we have the same common denominator um the same oppressor and when we fight against each other we're only achieving the goal of white supremacy right right and so the more that we support each other, the more that we advocate and speak up for one another and demonstrate to our communities and demonstrate to people that it's possible to 
holds care for the black community and the Asian community at the same time, I think like our lives depend on it. Um, and I think if we look in history and again, a couple, a couple pieces of education, if I may, I read a, I read an excerpt from a speech from Frederick Douglass a couple months ago, where he advoca advocated for Chinese immigration, Chinese and Japanese immigration. And he saw, um, strength in diversity. And he, and he basically said, what I'm doing is, um, I'm paraphrasing, um, but like what I'm doing is not just for black people, but it's for Asian people as well. And we can like learn from each other. Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. They were both against the Vietnam War. Specifically, yeah. I think because they acknowledged that the funds going towards the war would divert attention from um, black communities that actually needed the money. Uh, Vincent Chin, I mentioned to you about him before after he died or again after he was murdered um jesse jackson spoke up and held like a press conference and gave space to um uh vincent chin's mother to grieve um and i thought that was really powerful because any of these any of these black leaders could have easily said like oh my community has it worse we're gonna focus on the black community and if we get justice for us then eventually you'll get it too because that's 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 one thing that i heard a lot from not just black people, but just other people of color that basically said like, we need to focus on black lives right now. And if the efforts, our efforts here will get justice for you eventually. And the message that that sent to me was like, let's focus on the more important group and you'll get like the justice crumbs uh, mm -hmm. eventually. And I'm not here for crumbs and vice versa. The solidarity that um, Asians showed Black Lives Matter last year, that was really encouraging to me. A lot of my friends that um, I'm, I'm privileged in the sense that I have strong ties to both communities now, but a lot of people do not. A lot of people have stayed in their, um, Asian bubble, um, maybe not intentionally, but they didn't intentionally seek to get out. And so, right. but even in the midst of that, I saw a lot of my friends who stayed in their bubbles. Um, attend marches and attend rallies and try to have conversations about what was going on last summer. And that was like, that blew my mind to see, um, to see the solidarity in that. I saw um, Asian pastors reaching out to black pastors saying like, how can we help? What can we do for you right now? And that was really big. And so I think um, that's the kind of things that we need to see in our communities now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so speaking of, you know, you ended right there on talking about, you know, black pastors and Asian pastors. Yeah. You know, a big thing that hastened my deconstruction journey and kind of, you know, walked me out of the church, you know, specifically at, at Hillsong was realizing, oh, like the white supremacy in here is actually no different than the white supremacy outside. Like it, it knows a few more Bible verses and it, you know, actually justifies things you know, using the Bible, um, but it, it's the same. Like I'm fighting the same battles inside as I am outside. So I don't personally have much hope. I don't have any hope, honestly, in the church. Like I don't, I don't believe it in it as an organizational structure. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm outside of it, but you're still in it. So I think you, I assume you have belief in it and have hope that it can change the world and can, you know, do good things. Um, so, you know, to me, it's a mess of, like I said, purity culture, patriarchy, misogyny, white supremacy, all these things that are just this, this tangle 
of trash. Yes. <laughs> and so if you were going to start to untangle this, what, like, what is the thread you would pull on this? Uh, can I pull it two threads? Yeah. All right. I want to start off by saying, um, I, I like, I have experienced church hurt before I've experienced deep, like traumatic church hurt before. And when, at the beginning, when we talked about like, what makes you a Christian, right? I said like, oh, I like, it's an acknowledgement, it's a belief that like the world is trash and the people are trash. And I didn't say, I didn't say non-Christians like are trash. I, I just said like the world and the people and like everybody are trash. So just because you're a Christian does not exempt you from being trash. Um, but I think it should change like the way that you respond to your, um, your exposure of trash um and people's like calling you out on it um and it if you believe that we were made for better then that will that should shape how you act moving forward and so um one thing that i one thread that i would tug on is like the church's avoidance in addressing hard topics um, these topics are difficult for anybody to address, but the church is held to such a high standard because they're supposed to lead their congregants in how to respond in a godly manner, um, the way that Jesus would respond. But the issue is that like so many churches and a lot of pastors, and I'm not speaking to any one particular church. I like, I'm speaking to like the church as a whole. I'm speaking to white churches, Asian churches, black churches, and may I say that that's one of the problems is that we have white churches and Asian churches and black churches and not diverse churches, not just mm -hmm. churches. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say like the failure to address hard topics like church leaders and pastors need to go through these journeys of white supremacy and debunking and deconstructing all of these things because they're responsible for leading other people through it. And that is hard work. Like we said, this is a lifelong work, right. but pastors actually need to go through um, these things to themselves and deal with these hard topics because they do have to lead others through it. Yeah. Um, and there are small steps, but none of them are easy because this is not, it's not an easy thing. No. Um, and so it is, it is just really just being open and committed to doing the work and to just like lean into being wrong yeah, and admitting you've been wrong um, and be okay with that. Because like you said, all your faves are problematic. We are all problematic. Yeah. Like, and that's- And again, that's not even just, that's not Christians. That's just everybody. That's everybody. People are always gonna be part of um, the problem. And if you like, I think like you just need to think like oh if i wouldn't it's the golden rule if like i shouldn't do this in like my personal relationship then like the church shouldn't be doing it like either if the church if people are called to like repent ask for forgiveness like the church should be open and willing um to do the same things i agree um <laughs> for your benefit because i don't <laughs> i'm out i'm not i don't care but yeah so maybe to do with all this, maybe maybe outside of it, as we're closing up shop here. Libby, what is something you believe 
or believe in? I believe in slash like want to believe in slash like sometimes hang by a thread but still like kind of there um believe in hope for deeper unity among people groups and for mm -hmm. us to see more christians that represent christ um because i posted and we had spoken about this but i posted um like something on instagram where I said, like, it's a damn good thing I believe in Christ and not in Christians, because if I believed in Christians, like, I may not be one. Um, my hope isn't something bigger than people, because like we said, trash. And so if you believe in people, you're going to, they're going to fail you. Um, and you're going to fail them. But my hope isn't something bigger. And I hope that, like, um, you know, conversations like the ones that we're having now um, and conversations that people have in and out of the church um, in the future, um, my hope is that those conversations will not just be conversations, but that it will create um, actions that bring about real and sustainable change. And if we don't have that hope, then like, what are we even doing right now? So. <laughs> believe in hope. I believe in hope too. So Libby, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for this conversation. Yeah. This was so good. So where people want to find you, friend you, fan you, where can they find you? Instagram. You can add me on Instagram. I can be found at, at Elizabeth underscore underscore joy. So that's Elizabeth with a S, not a Z. I hate it when you spell my name wrong. <laughs> and then it's two underscores and joy. That's my middle name. It's appropriate. So everybody go go be Libby's friend and learn something. That's what we're here for. And teach teach me something. Circle circle of life, circle of knowledge, circle of hope. All good things. Yes. And here's to a better world. Fingers crossed. So that's that and that's a wrap on episode 2.8. It's no secret that I have no hope in organized religion, but I do have so much hope for humanity and in humanity. We've got a long road ahead of us, so much to unlearn and undo, and mistakes will be made, but that's okay. Better to stumble on your way than to stand in the way of progress. What? I don't know. It's been a crazy week, and I am tired, y'all. I'll tell you all about it sometime, but for now, many thanks to Libby for talking with me, and thank you for listening in on this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I hope you'll take a moment to jump on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. And be sure to follow this podcast at God Has Not Given on Instagram and check out the blog at GodHasNotGiven.com. Hit the show notes for all the links. Tell your friends, be well, and I will talk to you soon. I